and I'd come to Beth Page at the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. Immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the full of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on him and he said to the and he sat on the coats most of the crowd spread their coats on the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road the crowds going ahead of him and those who had followed were shouting Hosanna to the son of David blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was searching, Who is this? And the crowd were saying, This is a prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. If we look just for a second at the overall structure of the next few sections, there are three important events, important actions, we might say. Jesus entering Jerusalem on the colt, Jesus cleansing the temple, and Jesus cursing the fig tree. Then there are three big parables in 2128, the parable of the two sons, and the parable of the landowner, and then the parable of the marriage feast. And then there are three questions. The Pharisees ask about tribute to Caesar, the Sadducees ask about the resurrection, and one of the lawyers asks, what's the great commandment in the law? So you have three symbolic actions, you have three parables, and, uh, and you have three questions. So that's kind of the way this is divided up. And here, um, Jesus is near Jerusalem. We think this is on Sunday before he was crucified on Friday. And what does he tell two of his disciples to do? Yeah, and and what if somebody says something to them about it? He tells them how to respond and I'll let them go. Jesus is in control. And whatever he needs, he should have. Maybe that means Jesus had made prior arrangement with the owner of this animal. I don't know. But it's interesting that Jesus, even though he's about to die, is calmly coordinating everything. You know, he's telling them what to do, what to get, what to say if somebody questions them. You know, Jesus is still so poised and so composed. He never falls apart like we would. You know, he's always planning and, and thinking. And so he, he arranges for them to get this, this colt, and he does, they do, 
and he rides it into Jerusalem. Now, what, are the, what does the crowd do as he's riding in? Lay their garments on the road, and they call out, uh, Hosanna. Yes. So what, is, what was the idea of that? They're honoring him. Yeah. They're kind of like laying down the carpet for him to ride in on. This is an honor to him. And they're crying out expressions of praise to him. They are seeing this as the Messiah entering the capital city. And I imagine they are expecting him any moment now to, to take control and to liberate Jerusalem and all that. And they are as excited as they can be. This is a high point, even though they, they don't understand you know what he really is there for but they are uh, wild with excitement and proclaiming him as king what's the significance of Jesus riding in on a colt yes yes uh, it is prophesied, but what else is the significance? It's not a big, glorious stallion, stallion or chariot or anything else. It's yeah. a little cult. So it really is a way of showing his humility. You know, it's a way of coming in in a way without status. You know, all these things, Jesus is doing things in humble ways, in ways that don't exalt himself. He could have could have ordered any type of uh, you know entrance he wanted, I suppose. I mean, what might we have done? You know, maybe can you imagine? I don't know what you call these things, but carried by hand in one of these carriages or something like that. You know, that's what I think would be kind of cool. You know, with runners, maybe maybe people fanning him. You know, or something. I don't know. Peacock. Or, or, or certainly a stallion, or maybe an elephant, you know. <laughs> uh, that'd be status. Yeah. <clears throat> but, you know, riding on a little colt. I think Jesus is showing, in everything he does, that he's not out for worldly glory and status. Comments and thoughts? Well, why was he riding in at all? I don't know. It's, I think this is sort of symbolic of his entrance into the capital city, you know, kind of for the last time. It comes to my mind that I saw, okay, this is, the, it comes to my mind, the, the picture there from Afghanistan. Well, over there they, they don't have any cars or trucks, so they use the, uh, uh, camel, uh, the camel or either donkey to, for the transportation. And one of the, the one day I was uh, I was on security that we had to secure the prime uh, the perimeter and then I was pushed around on the very uh, next to the road, and the guy was riding the uh, the a little donkey with the uh, the white turban on and everything and I thought this is exactly Jesus probably would look like two thousand years ago, <laughs> and that wasn't a good <laughs> picture. Uh, yeah, that wasn't like the and I'm thinking like what you just said earlier that he could have. You know, he could have arranged in anything. He could have write a star if he wanted to, and uh, you know, absolutely. 
And the when when these the, the two little kids asked about you know well can we sit next to your throne? I mean, I I come to my mind that well the universe the creator of the universe have a plan that like I don't know like our plan is compared to the 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 the, the sun is little. Well, the sun is uh, compared to the the star that we saw. The brightest star that we saw is way bigger than our sun. And all these universes that can, I can't even comprehend these. And the creator of that universe can arrange who's going to sit the next to him. And they were asking, well, can I sit right next to uh, Jesus? And if, if they really like try to pick a, put a picture of the how big that is it, it, to, to sit in the, the next to the creator of the universe, I don't think if they really picture I don't think they want to sit right next to <laughs> Jesus when it come down to. like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, everything Jesus does has a purpose. And so much of what Jesus does is totally the opposite of what we would have done if we had had the power and authority that he had. We would have done everything to flaunt our glory. And Jesus practically did everything to hide it. Other thoughts? Good point. Love it always it. seems strange to me that they're <coughs> treating him like this, but where are they in the next <coughs> chapter? <coughs> Do you think these people turned on him because he didn't liberate the city? Well, some of them may have. You know, people are fickle. But also remember there's tons of people in Jerusalem for the Passover. And so these guys may not have been very much in evidence in the crowd that was crying to crucify him. This is most of the crowd. Mm -hmm. Wait, what do you yeah, most of the crowd that was there lining the parade route were doing this. Not most of the people who were in Jerusalem. You don't think it was a very large number? Well, I think it was a pretty good sized number, but I don't think we're talking about, you know, 300,000, which I think the estimates of how many people would be in Jerusalem at this time would be something like that. You know, maybe there's, maybe, I mean, you know, at the height of Jesus' popularity, what did he have? Maybe 10,000 people following him? Maybe this is a few thousand. I don't know. Logan. Um, do you think that um, Jesus' way of liberating the city, instead of, like, taking over all the authority in the city and ruling he's in the next um section how he's cleansing the temple do you think he's like taking <coughs> the spiritual side well, i think that's a, that's what jesus came to do was to liberate spiritually to deliver from sin and from the power of the devil and to provide spiritual freedom and so yeah what he does in the temple is kind of a sign of that Other thoughts? All right, so this is probably now Monday, 12 to 17. Jesus entered the temple and cast out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house should be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, 
Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, thou hast prepared praise for thyself. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Okay, so Jesus enters the temple. And what does he find going on there? Selling? Yeah, what do they sell? Doves. Why? For people to take home as pets? You know, no, these were sacrifices. And what a great spot for that. That dove traffic was big. You could buy it, take it right there, you're right there in the temple precincts, and offer it. You know, one-stop shopping. And they were also uh, had money changers. Why would they have that, those? People are from all different places and they have different kinds of money. Yes, and they needed to pay the temple tax in the, in the shekel of, of the Jews. So I think that's what that was for. And so they were doing all this in the temple area that was supposed to be a house of prayer. It was supposed to be a place for people to worship God. And they were doing all these things. Now, a couple things to think about uh, in connection with this. Um, this is the second time Jesus did this. He'd done it in John 2 near the beginning of his ministry. He does it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke here at the end. Could there really have been two times when Jesus came in to cleanse the temple? Yeah. <clears throat> I use this illustration every time I go through a gospel with this, but in Sao Paulo, when we were passing out flyers on pedestrian streets, Every once in a while, the big dump truck of the city government would come through because everybody that was selling the stuff on the city, on the big pedestrian sidewalks, were illegals. They were just, they were black market stuff. You know, you could buy anything down the sidewalk. You know, this is like a, a ro roadside sidewalk. And, but when the, when, it was so funny, when the, when the truck, every once in a while, the truck from the city government would come through and whoo, here I'm passing out flyers and all of a sudden, whoa, all these people standing in the middle and having all their blankets and tarps and one thing or another with all the stuff they're selling, it vanished. They've gone into storefronts here, there, and yonder, and whenever everybody just vanishes, I look up and there's coming the truck of the, of the city government. And uh, it's always funny, because a lot of times I'd pass out flyers there for a few hours. And, you know, 30, 45 minutes after it had gone through, there's one street vendor. And then in a little bit, there's a second one. Three or four hours after he was through, you'd never know he'd been through. <laughs> you know, so I can imagine that when Jesus cleansed the temple in John 2, it didn't take them long before they were doing the very same things in the temple again. What does Jesus do with these guys? their tables over. Yeah! He overturns their tables and drives them out. How does that feel to you? Un-Jesus-like. Uh, yeah, it doesn't seem very Jesus-like, does it? Seems rather violent. What's gotten into Jesus here? <clears throat> well, it's his father's house, so he's in Yes. He's outraged! They are doing these things in his father's house and they have no business doing those things there. 
And so he's very angry about it, and he's, you know, sending them on their way. It's not that he was against selling an animal or against changing money, but he's against perverting the purpose of his father's house for these kinds of activities. And then you've got the blind and the lame coming to him in the temple, and he heals them. And what are the children doing in the temple? Yeah, they are shouting praises to him in the temple. And what do the priests and scribes think? Become indignant. Yeah, why? Well, like, don't you hear what they're saying about you? Like, aren't you going to make him stop? Yes. Part of it's that, I think. You know... This is an outrage that they would call him, you know, the son of David. Maybe also they are objecting to the, the noise, you know, these children hollering out. Now, isn't it interesting? They had no problem with the bawling and the bleeding of the cattle and the, you know, haggling and the dickering of the money changers and the animal sellers. But boy, they sure don't want the children to cry out in favor of the Lord. That's, that's kind of interesting. Uh, Jesus always had time for children and always defended them. He quotes from Psalm 8, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself. Jesus sees, you know, that God wants to be praised by children. He's applying that passage to himself. So, can you imagine how the authorities are, are feeling about Jesus right about now? Do you think he's doing this on purpose? To provoke them? Maybe a little, but I think more these these are kind of his last acts of, of trying to bring the crisis to a head and showing where he stands. But... but the more that the time has come, so he's speaking out more? Yes, I think so. Um, remember also, how often was Jesus in Jerusalem? Not that often. You know, he's been mostly up in Galilee, so it's not like he sees this every day of the week. But yes, I think now, instead of fleeing the persecution, he's confronting them. You know, he's, he's willing to confront. There's a lot of conflict. Uh, there's the, his hour is coming, so there's not any more delay. Other thoughts? 18 to 22. Now in the morning when he was returning to the city, he became hungry. Mm -hmm. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except the leaves only. He said to it, No longer shall there ever be any fruit from it. And at once the fig tree withered. Seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, How did the fig tree wither all at once? And Jesus answered and said to him, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to this fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all the things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Okay. Well, Jesus was hungry. He sees this fig tree. And what did it have? Leaves. It had leaves. Can you eat the leaves? Not very well. What was he looking for? Figs. 
And it didn't have those. And so what does he do? Yeah, he says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And that fig tree withered up. And the disciples are really kind of surprised by this. Now, does that seem like Jesus? It almost looks like Jesus just got mad because he was hungry and the tree didn't have any figs on it. But Jesus doesn't do miracles because he's mad because he didn't get what he wanted to eat. That sounds about as little like Jesus as anything you could imagine. So what's the point of this? To have fruit? Yes. To, to have something to be a good disciple? To be yes. Think about the nation of Israel right here. Were they bearing fruit for God? None. But what did they have a lot of? Yes. You know, they had a lot of outward show. They, they, they looked good. You know, they all leafed out. But you examined them, there was no fruit for God. How many people have lots of leaves, but no fruit? And that's, that's the way some Christians are. And, and so, you know, when that was the case, Jesus cursed the fig tree and it was withered up. You know, God expects fruit. Um... But Jesus goes on to suggest another lesson from this. He said, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. So Jesus uses this as an illustration of the effectiveness of prayer. You know, you think this is something... Well, God will do whatever you ask, you know, even casting this mountain into the sea. So you see what happened here. You need to recognize that God hears and answers prayer. What is the condition he sets on somebody being able to have God answering their prayer? Yes. What does that mean? Okay, that's, I have a question about that. I, the first time when I read that, and the first thing that come to my mind, okay, now I believe in God, but the I also know that the mountain not gonna move. That is that okay? So yes. Well, so is that the, the does that mean that I don't believe in God or like what kind of faith that he was talking about in you? All right. That's, that's what we're asking. That's, that's exactly... There's two or three points we need to think about, but one of them that he emphasizes is the idea if you have faith and do not doubt, and uh, what it, all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. So he's stressing the faith, the not doubting, and the believing. What is that saying? What does it mean to have faith? We sometimes use that term not so much the way the Bible does. You know, what, what do we do if, um, you know, oh, I don't know, um, your, your ball team is down? What does the coach say? 
just have faith. You know, it'll, it'll work out. We'll come back. Or somebody's really sick. And we just need to have faith. Is that the way the Bible uses the term faith? When, when the Bible talks about faith, what's it talking about? It's like an active trust in God. A trust in God based on what? Where does faith come from? What he said. Yes. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. When he talks about having faith and not doubting, he's talking about trusting the Lord and not being wavering in our commitment to God. You know, doubting is the guy who's not sure whether he really wants to do things God's way or not. You know, he's kind of wishy-washy. James 1 talks about uh, the same thing, praying in faith for wisdom, because he talks about the guy who's like the wave of the sea, <laughs> you know, just going back and forth being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways, and he won't get anything. Because that person isn't willing to commit his way to what God says. But we're talking about people who trust God, they obey God, they're committed to God, and they ask believing. Now, to ask believing is to ask in faith based upon the word, what the Word of God says. So, if you are believing, if you're asking based upon hearing the Word of God, would you probably be asking for, you know, a diamond ring? Is there anything in the Word of God that is going to lead you to make a request like that? You know, asking in faith, asking believing means it's based upon what God's Word says not based upon what I want or what I feel or what I think, but based upon what God has promised, what God has taught, we ask. And we ask with full commitment to the Lord. Now, given that parameter, if, if, if I'm asking based upon, you know, my commitment to the Lord, based upon what he's revealed, then can he move the mountain? Well, look, if, it, if, if, he, if he meant by that a physical mountain, a shovel full of the, at a time, we can move that mountain. When, when God speaks of mountains in the scriptures, normally he's talking about a huge obstacle, a huge barrier, an insurmountable task. For example, look at Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah chapter 4. He is promising Zerubbabel that by his strength he will finish the rebuilding of the temple, which seemed like an overwhelming responsibility. He says in Zechariah 4, 6, Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. And he says in 9, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will finish it. Now, he says, Zerubbabel is going to finish the job. He's going to get the temple built. And so he says, what are you, O great mountain? Here's this mountain. Here's this 
huge responsibility. What does God make the mountain? A plane. He flattens the mountain. God is a God who loves to take away the mountain. God is the God who, who's taken away all kinds of mountains for God's people. You know, when they ask in faith, based upon what God <laughs> reveals, God will take away the obstacles, the barriers. He will enable us to do the things that seem impossible to do. So I think that's what he's saying. Not that we can just ask selfishly for just any old whim we have. We have to ask in faith, based upon what God reveals, and not imagining he's talking about just moving a physical piece of dirt. <laughs> but that's, that's not really the idea. But the mountain here representing whatever it is that is standing in our way of serving the Lord. We can ask and God will remove. I think that's the idea. I think that's really encouraging. And he, them seeing what he did to the fig tree, it's like, guys, God will answer prayers. We don't believe that a lot of times. You know, we've not been convinced God means what he's saying. If you really believed God was, would answer prayers like that, what would you do? Pray. Yeah. You know, I mean, who wouldn't pray earnestly if they really believed God would, would answer? But that's exactly what God says he'll do. Us trusting, God will answer those prayers. Thoughts and comments on that? Cameron. In Mark, this story is a little bit broken up. It goes where they pass by the tree and he curses it and then they go and clean out the temple and they come back and then it's wilted. But here it says immediately it wilts. Why the difference? Well, because this is telescoping the story to tell it all together. You know, when he says in uh, uh, 21, uh, uh, 19, and at once the fig tree withered, that at once is not telling you how many seconds it took. But it's saying, you know, it withered. Well, in this, in Matthew's account, he doesn't bother to say that it was the next day they noticed it. You know, he just kind of tells the story. You know, once it withered and they ask him this. Whereas, you know, Mark helps you see actually they didn't see it withering right then, but they got there the next day and it already withered up. There's a lot of times like that where the gospel writers will write from different perspectives. And so one will give some details, the other one just does not give. Caleb. Um, whenever Jesus curses a tree, whenever he says, no longer shall there ever be any fruit from you, like, why does he like, say this when, when it's already not bearing any fruit. Well, it's not going to have a chance now. You know, if we don't bear fruit for God, he'll take away even the possibility of our bearing fruit. Yeah. If all we've got is leaves, all we've got is show, we'll get to the point where we can't even bear fruit because he'll wither us up. It's like the talents. If we don't have anything, then what we have will be taken away. Yes, <laughs> Even exactly. though we have nothing. Yes. <laughs> Other thoughts? Like 
good section. Um, Taking away obstacles and the barriers doesn't always mean that they just go away because the trials are sometimes good for us. Yes. So what do you say? Well, I you would leave the impression almost that your obstacles are always going to be a plan. I don't know that I think that's necessarily true. Well, when we're asking in faith, we're not asking that God just eliminate every challenge because we're to count it all joy when we fall into various tribulations. So we ask based upon God's will. We ask for his will to be done. You know, think about, you know, what would be some, you know, mountains that God has overcome for his people. Think about, for example, when David was uh, anointed as king, and yet Saul chased him all over the country, and David prayed for God's help. Now, David, God didn't just destroy Saul the next day, but he eventually took away that mountain and made David the next king. You know, there are lots of examples in the Bible of God dealing with the mountain. We trust him to deal with it the way he chooses. We pray in faith for God to do his will. But God, the prayer really changes things and God really removes the mountains. But we're not saying that, you know, uh, I will always know when or how that ought to happen. And it doesn't mean there'll not be any difficulties. Would God want there never to be any difficulties? That would not be good for us at all. And we wouldn't want that. Yeah, good point. Other thoughts? All right, 23 to 27. When he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Jesus answered and said to them, I will ask you one thing too, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from man? And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, then he will say to us, Then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for they all hold John to be a prophet. And answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now you might look again at this pattern. You have an unanswered question, then three parables, then three answered questions, and then in the end of chapter 22, you have another unanswered question. Uh, so we've got kind of that uh, pattern. But the leaders of the Jews are asking Jesus what question? What authority is he doing in this? What is this? The temple? I imagine so. Who gave you the right to enter the temple like you were boss and just order people around in there? You know, without any permission from the uh, leadership. So who gave you that authority? And what's Jesus' answer? Question. He answered with a question. What was the question? John's authority from. Yes. You know, was John's baptism authorized by God or by man? What's the right answer to that question? If they had given that answer, what could Jesus have said? You 
getting closer. <laughs> yeah. What had John said about the source of Jesus' authority? Jesus is. Yeah. So really, that, the answer to that question will lead them to be able to answer their own question. However, how do they start to think about how to answer that question? Yes. They're trying to decide what to say. Now, let's see. If we say this, he'll say that. If we say this, that'll happen. Now, is that the right way to answer a question? Start thinking about, well, if I say this, I say that. If tomorrow I ask you, was Logan at the study last night, what will you think? Will you think, well, now, if I say he was, then, but if I say he wasn't, no. If you're an honest person and I ask you, was Logan at the study, what will you think? Yes. I didn't ask you for the answer. I asked you what you think. <laughs> I think yes. What would be your reasoning process? I see him. Yeah. You'd think, well, let's see, was Logan at the study last night? Well, yeah. So we say yes. We don't say, well, now listen. If, if <laughs> I, I said. <laughs> if, if, if we wouldn't say, well, now if we say Logan was at the study, then, you know, this might happen. If I say he wasn't at the study, then that, well, that's not the way you answer the question if you're trying to determine truth. If you're trying to determine what's politically correct, maybe you do that. See, Jesus exposes them. They can't use either side because they say, well, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why didn't you believe him? If we say from man, the people won't like us because they thought he was a prophet, so they just say, we don't know. And so what does Jesus say? He, he answers with what their true answer was. Neither will I tell you. Yeah you're not willing to answer an honest question, then I'm not even going to tell you where my authority comes from. They have proven they are incompetent hearers anyway. You know, they can't even figure out whether or not John's baptism from heaven or man, what good's it going to do to tell them where his authority came from? They show they're not really honest. Not really honorable people. Never try to answer a question deciding what the consequences are going to be for each answer. Questions or comments? It's actually pretty um, strange that they, that they answer like this because, um, they, because the Pharisees were prideful. And so I think for them it would be really hard for them to admit that they don't know. Yes. Yes, that's exactly. It makes them look stupid. They didn't even know whether this man who baptized everybody around there was doing it from God or man. You know, they're supposed to be the religious leaders. So they really left with egg on their face. So is this Tuesday? I suspect it is. Because yeah. it's the next day. Yeah. Yeah, it appears to be Tuesday. All this controversy really builds up on Tuesday, the best we can tell. All right, well, we're going to stop here then. And I think I can do next week. So.